0: to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas.
1: Tonight, we embark on a journey that continues the extraordinary narrative of JP, a US Army insider whose revelations are reshaping our understanding of the cosmos and humanity's place within it. Since Dr. Michael Sella's initial contact with JP in 2008, the saga has unfolded to reveal a clandestine world where the US military, non-human intelligence, and advanced technologies converge in the shadows of our reality. In this second volume of Dr. Sala's meticulous documentation, we delve deeper into JP's experiences, which predominantly anchor us to Earth, exploring its hidden depths rather than the vastness of space. The shift from the celestial missions of the first volume to the terrestrial encounters of the second is stark as we uncover the secrets that lie beneath our feet, in underwater and underground locations that are home to non-human intelligence. J.P.'s accounts as an enlisted serviceman are unprecedented. His continued service in the U.S. Army has granted him access to classified projects, bringing to light interactions with ancient civilizations and their long-guarded technologies. The recognition he has received from his superiors, despite his enlisted status, underscores the importance of the covert disclosure initiative that he is a part of, a carefully orchestrated revelation that maintains plausible deniability, while peeling back the layers of secrecy. From underground cities and spaceports, to encounters with beings that have been part of Earth's history for millennia, JP's missions are a testament to the complexity and depth of the hidden interactions between humans and extraterrestrial entities. These missions are not just about exploration. They're about protection, awakening, and the preparation for a planetary shift in consciousness. Get ready, because with Dr. Michael Sala, we're about to unravel mysteries that have long eluded us. This journey promises more than just stories, it's a deep dive into the unknown, challenging everything we thought we knew. No holds barred, no stone unturned. Dr. Michael Sala is comping up next.
2: Welcome to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To access tonight's full interview and all of our exclusive material, simply join the Veritas Plus family by clicking on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And while you're there, don't forget to check out the Veritas store for a range of great products, including focused life force energy. Experience the power of FLFE with a 15-day free trial today. No credit card required. Discover the Veritas Digest series on Amazon. Multiple volumes, each unveiling the truths they don't want you to know. It's more than just reading. It's an awakening. Secure your copies today. If you're looking to get in touch with Mel, have a guest suggestion, or would like to provide feedback, simply click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy tonight's show. And now here's your host, Mel Hostalric. And directly
1: from Tennessee, the book is U.S. Army Insider missions part two: underground cities, giants, and spaceports. His website is exopolitics.org. And I'm referring to my friend Dr. Michael Sal. Hello, Michael, and welcome back. How are you? I'm well, Mel. Thanks for having me back. My pleasure. And The last time we spoke, we talked about JP, and we scratched the surface, and I'm glad that you wrote an additional book because you couldn't fit it all in the first one, right?
0: Well, that's right, yeah. I mean, there's so many missions that he's reported to me that I decided to make it a multi-volume series, and and so Volume 2 just came out. And, uh, you know, more mission reports are coming in, so there will be a Volume 3. And, of course, the first question, because...
1: We have a lot of open-minded skeptics who listen to this program who say to me, I love JP's story, but how do we know, Mel, how do we know, Dr. Sala, that this is not a a plan by the deep state to muddy the
0: disclosure waves? Well, that's a good question. I, I think it's, I mean, there's a few answers to that. One is, I've been working with JP since 2008. And uh, he has given me a, a lot of information, and he's also shared photographs of the some of the spacecraft that he's been taken on. So, I mean, with JP, it's not just that he's having these experiences and is reporting on them, because a lot of people do. He's also got photographs. And that was what convinced me to go public with J.P. back in 2017, because I've known him since 2008. He was telling me all these stories, and I thought, yeah, you know, fantastic story. Okay, great. And I just took notes. That was it. I took notes. But I thought, well, you know, there's no way for me to prove this, so I'll just keep a record of it. So that's what I did. In 2017, he started giving me photographs of these uh, anti-gravity craft, and we're talking flying triangles, flying rectangles. and and uh flying sources that he was seeing in the Tampa area around McDill Air Force Base, which is where he was living at the time. And so he was also telling me about his encounters with different Air Force personnel who were wanting him to like uh you know take take photos that were wanting him to tell the public about. What he was seeing and what he was recording, and also revealed that he was being taken on these craft. So he's got the photos. So then, yeah, so there's right away, you know, independent empirical data that, and we're talking probably well over hundred photos now that he's taken of these craft in around McDill Air Force Base. Then in 2019, he joined the army. So, you know, he's given me all his records, you know, his enlistment papers, uh, the different courses he's completed. Uh, he's given me photos of him doing training, you know, shooting rifles on these APCs with his buddies. He's actually taken me onto the base where he currently serves. So I, you know, he took, gave me a guided tour with my wife of that. So he's absolutely the real deal. I mean, he's he's uh, a current active U.S. Army, and he's being allowed to reveal his experiences uh, by personnel in or senior personnel in the army. Who, at, well, more, to be more correct, uh, within the Air Force and the Army, who want this information to come out. So there are white hats. There are people that want the public to know about these incredible technologies and the secret space programs exist. And and I think JP is a special case because he is a contactee. And I I think in Volume 1, I kind of explained that there were these agreements between the Air Force and these Nordic human-looking extraterrestrials that JP had contact with in 2008 that in exchange for the Air Force working with these Nordics, being uh, given access to Nordic technologies and being trained, that they would treat JP as one of the Nordics' kind of like assets. So they would protect him and expose him to different things and allow him to play a role in disclosure, because that's one of the things that the Nordics want, is like, you know, we're going to give you this high-tech or we're going to train you in how to use this high-tech um, but in exchange we want you to agree to disclose this to your public and so here's what here's our asset we want you to allow him to talk about it and so that's what's happened and I, I discussed that in volume one so yeah here's the real deal uh absolutely there's there's no way he could um, make this up he's got the photographs he's he's in the army Uh, He is uh, a straight shooter, and I've known him for 15 years now. But why do they
1: use someone like JP and, say, not a general or somebody with a higher ranking in order to come out with this? Is it because plausible deniability just to plant the seed, slip drip a slow drip?
0: Uh, Because JP, as an enlisted soldier, and someone who's, who, you know, let's, let's be honest, I mean, he's not very articulate. He's not someone that's going to wow an audience thinking, well, this guy really knows it all. You know, he's he's just going to present his missions. He's going to get people to think about it. But he's, he's not a big threat to the status quo as opposed to, say, someone like Edgar Mitchell. Uh, the, ast- the former astronaut, or the, astro- the other astronaut, uh, 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 Cooper, Gordon Cooper, or I mean, you 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 come up with a general, someone with credibility. I mean, these would be people that would automatically have, uh, you know, that would fill up press conferences, and they'd be just too much of a threat to the status quo. But JP, you know, he's an unknown. I mean, he maintains. We, we maintain anonymity just because that's one of the conditions for him to be able to do this. And so he he doesn't threaten the status quo, but what happens is that he gets the information out. So the information is now in the public arena. There's two volumes now detailing all his missions so that, you know, at some point, you know, when all this breaks and people start accusing the Air Force in the army, and say, "Well, you kept this all secret from us." And I say, "Well, no, no, we didn't. We allowed, we allowed personnel to talk about it, uh, but you didn't believe them." And I think this is this is the way they're doing it. They they're choosing someone like JP to get the information out, uh, but not in a way that kind of threatens the status quo at this time. But you know that can change. Uh, there there may be some changes coming up with JP in in terms of him. Being allowed to go public, but you know we're going to we'll cross that bridge when we get to it.
1: Before we dive into the, the new book, I just thought of something. You mentioned Dr. Edgar Mitchell. I'm thinking of my conversation that I had with Dr. Stephen Greer about 15 years ago, and I believe he said he said to me that he wanted to interview Neil Armstrong. That's when he was alive, and they had a mediator go to him, and there, in response the answer was. I would love to, but if I do, they're going to kill my family, so I can't. Do you think if that conversation had taken place today, it would have been different than what happened 15 years ago?
0: Well, it's uh, the environment today is much more conducive to whistleblowers coming forward. I mean, we are kind of like at this historic juncture where whistleblowers are being allowed to come forward. And, and because of this... National Defense Authorization Act, they can go come forward and they can go talk to the Arrow office. That's the all-domain anomaly resolution office headed by Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, and they can go talk. Um, and the non-disclosure agreements that they've signed with any entity do not apply. So that means that people like Edgar Mitchell, Gordon Cooper, and many others that were read in now that. They would have an outlet to go and speak about their experiences, but the problem, of course, is that currently the Arrow office is a gatekeeper. It's it's kind of like a, a it's like a vacuum. It's just sucking in uh, information, but just releasing into the public arena this kind of very mundane, kind of like oh you know we've we've had like uh, an extra 150 sightings over the last 12 months, you know, bringing the total. Up to eight hundred uh, sightings since two thousand and four, uh, and you know fifty percent of them are unknown. Uh, another another forty percent we can explain as natural cause, as natural phenomenon, mistaken, and so forth. Just give these mundane analyses, and the the real testimonies are, are buried. I mean, this is we see this. I mean, this is what's happening with Arrow our, our Office, and I mean just yesterday. The there was a press conference at the Pentagon where this gatekeeping process is is seen because you you actually have Sean Kirkpatrick saying I was asked the question well what about David Grush he said that he reached out to you and uh, he kind of like shared his information and Sean Kirkpatrick said oh, no, I'm, I know we never met that uh, uh, Grush. In the, in that capacity of revealing any of this information, and in fact, I've reached out to him several times and he hasn't answered. And and Grush responded and said, "No, I, I, I haven't been approached by him at all." So that is the kind of process that we're witnessing now. That the Arrow Office is really a gatekeeper. And this is Sean Kirkpatrick, I think he he was appointed to this position to be a gay, gatekeeper because I mean Congress has given the Arrow Office enormous power, because for the first time, you you have a a body where whistleblowers can go and appear and reveal everything they know, without the NDAs applying, and so that's that's a really big innovation. But at the moment, the Arrow Office is is gatekeeper uh, for this. Now we have uh, some new legislation coming forward. And and that's kind of push the thing forward a little bit more. But you know, to answer your question, I just think that Edgar Mitchell, Gordon Cooper, people like that, if they were alive, they could probably go to the Arrow Office, reveal everything. But then we wouldn't hear about it, and that that would be it because it would uh, they couldn't talk about it outside of the Arrow Office without then NDAs applying. And of course, I, I think uh, what uh, Neil Armstrong told Stephen Greer is absolutely correct that if you violate your NDA, um, yeah, it's the consequences are extreme. So that's that's the that's the big roadblock here is how do you protect people, high-level people who have access to these programs who know a lot and want to talk about it, but they have these NDAs hanging over their heads. And and they're threatened, and they're told, "Well, look, you know, you got beautiful grandchildren. It'd be a shame if something happened to them because you couldn't keep your fucking mouth shut." <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> that's it. <laughs> totally, totally. And, and I'm thinking of of two waves. This closure project, May two thousand one, and I've had the privilege of interviewing a lot of them, uh, those the witnesses who are no longer with us, including Clifford Stone, and you know, we still have uh, Doctor Carol Russ and but then now we had this new wave. And just before we started talking today, I was communicating with Eric Hecker. You probably heard that name. He's the one that worked for for Raytheon in Antarctica. And he's coming on the show to discuss his part. And hopefully we'll do the same with many of these new witnesses who seem to be more protected than that first wave that came in 2001. Do you think they are?
0: Well, protected, uh, I mean, there's a legislative protection in place now for whistleblowers. Right. But it's but it's limited to them just going to the Arrow office at the moment. Oh. Now, you know, with this new UAP Disclosure Act for 2023, I mean, that's going to provide uh, more of an outlet for whistleblowers and corporations to talk because there's going to be this nine-person review board set up to go over the data, to go over the information information and so that would be another avenue. But but at the moment, there is a legislative protection in place. Uh, but you know, how do you ensure that the information that these whistleblowers or insiders reveal to the error office eventually sees the light of day? That it, that it 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 comes out into the public arena as opposed to just disappearing into this black hole uh, where it doesn't get reported. Uh, and and that's it. I mean, so that's that's the problem. And you
1: use a key word, corporations. And this has bothered me ever since I read the book from uh, Philip Corso, when he allegedly said that all of the technology that they found, they, quote-unquote, transferred to the private institutions so that FOIA would not apply. So how many corporations like, you know, Boeing and Raytheon and, and, you know, fill in the blanks, how many of them have exotic reversed engineer technology where you and I cannot file Freedom of Information Act requests because they don't apply to
0: private institutions? Yeah, that's a very important point, Mel. Uh, there was a witness uh, with Project Camelot. Uh, you, you might recall the the archivist or Mr. X. Yep. Kerry Cassidy and Bill Ryan interviewed him and What he revealed was that he was working for a corporation and I've since found out that that was the Rockwell Corporation and that he was asked to come in and for six months he would be the archivist. He would archive all of the uh, artifacts and documents concerning UFOs, extraterrestrial life that were being collected. And he said it was a massive archive that the Rockwell Corporation possessed and so for six months, he just archived all this stuff. And he said, you know, he he went through some of the things he saw. And, and you're absolutely correct that what, what had happened was that uh, because of the FOIA process, it was decided that rather than housing all of the all of the data, the documents, the artifacts within the military, where in theory you you could have FOIA requests. Uh, granting access or gaining access to these things, you would put it all into the private sector, and it would now come under proprietary domain. And so you FOIA couldn't access that. And so that was the process that was uh, decided and was being used. I, I think the FOIA Act uh, came out, I think the first version was in 1966 in the US, and then 1974, I think that's when it they tightened it and it, it came into effect. And so ever since that day, um, all of the records have been moved into these uh, corporate archives and study. And and since uh, Mr X kind of like, uh, I mean, he was killed, he died, of, I believe, of a heart attack not long after coming forward. So I think that's one of those questionable uh, deaths that's probably um, an assassination using this advanced technology. Uh, But the Rockwell Corporation was uh, taken over by Boeing. So that means that the Boeing Corporation has all of those archives now, those UFO archives. So I think what we can now hope for is that with this UFO Disclosure Act for 2023 that's about to be passed, uh, and this is why I was very, very impressed with it, if you go through that particular act and you, you go through its different articles. You know, one of the articles is that any kind of record, any artifact, document, anything that is in the possession of a corporation or military government uh, agency of any kind, that that has to be reported uh, to this review board that is being set up and that eminent domain can be asserted over the over those over that um that collection and i think that's very important because it all started off with the military because it's the military that does the invis- initial investigation crash retrievals uh, and then they siphon everything off to the corporations for the r&d and of course the R- the, the corporations claim proprietary ownership of that, but, I mean, they were given that by the military. So I think it's a good thing that this UFO Disclosure Act asserts eminent domain and says, no, no, I mean, that actually still belongs to us, and we can call upon it at any time if you withhold any information. So I think that's a very important part of the process. But, yeah, absolutely, the, the corporations, they play a big role, it, it have played a big role in keeping all of this
1: secret. I remember that was 2006 with Mr. X, and I remember also the heart attack and you know the other witnesses that came along, Dr. Pete Peterson and many of the others. Great time for Project Camelot back then. But let's go, let's go back to JP Underground Civilizations. The, the, this is a topic that is a lot of intrigue for all of us here. Florida, there were underground civilizations in Florida, so this adds another layer. To the mystery, can you delve deeper into the first impressions that J.P. had when he entered one of them, and how did he compare to any preconceived notions he may have had?
0: Well, you know, the one that he has visited the, the most is this um, this ant colony or uh, ant people colony. Uh, They're in in kind of like Florida, in that Pensacola region. And he was taken down there and he saw this uh and civilization with with uh, these beings who are clearly non-human looking, but humanoid in appearance in terms of like two arms, two legs, two eyes and so forth. But of course, the eyes are, you know, rather than being in front, uh they're more, more to the side, kind of like a deer. And they, they have kind of like some, some antenna and the, their skin is different. So they're clearly... A non-human species, but they're very intelligent, um, and they have advanced technology, and they have an ancient civilization there under the under underneath Florida. And he and the team that he went with when he visited that underground civilization, uh, they were very impressed because they saw a lot of uh, humans down there as well. And JP talked. To some of these people, uh, he he talked to a former a homeless person who lived in the street and who was admitted into this ant civilization. And you know, he was given sanctuary. And apparently, this ant civilization has been doing this for for centuries, thousands of years even. I mean, you know, this goes back to the Hopi legends of the of the kind of like ant people giving the the Hopi sanctuary at the end of the third world and at the beginning of the fourth world. And and so, you know, this, this ant civilization has been around for a long time and they have this advanced technology. They provide sanctuary to people in need. Uh, he, he said that the civilization down there was huge. I mean, huge, huge caverns. He said they could accommodate tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people if if needed. Uh, he and the other thing that was very noteworthy about his visit to these uh, to this ant civilization was that there was a sleeping giant there. So he described the giant as around eleven, twelve foot tall, uh, with uh, a very long beard, and that this giant was in a sarcophagus, asleep, looking as though he was sleeping. Like suspended animation. Uh, in some kind of stasis chamber. Yeah. And the Ant people said that he is about to awaken, and they were protecting this being. And But this being obviously had great, they they held this being in great reverence, great awe. And this is where Elena Danan comes into the picture, uh, because JP was tasked by the military to find out who this giant was. Uh, but he was un- unable to do it because there was a problem in terms of uh, w- w- the behaviour of two people on his team that kind of like took something that was given uh, out of the country. Uh, but he didn't find out who the giant was. Uh, then this is where Elena Danan comes in because uh, she asked her uh, Nordic contact, beforehand, Aredian, From the galactic federation of worlds you know who is this being this this giant that jp says and she was told that his name is ningish zitta and she didn't know at the time who ningish zitta was uh so we looked it up that ningish zitta was one of these uh anunnaki scientists that was part of the enki faction if you like and and he was known as the god of the good tree and that was interesting That was very significant because one of the things that JP said he saw down there at this underground civilization, that he he said that he saw this, he saw a a kind of a river stream, and next to it was this big tree. And he said that this tree had roots and branches that would extract water out of the, that that would extract the water. So its roots would extract water out of the stream. I mean, not... All trees do that, so nothing kind of too unusual there, but it, it would extract copious amounts of water. It would filter that water, and then the water would come out of the branches, like, you know, it would drop out of the branches, and that water had incredible medicinal and reju- rejuvenative power. So it was kind of like the tree of life in the in the book of Genesis, and so that was one of the things that you know, I talked to JP about. So when Elena found out that the identity of this sleeping giant was Ningishzida the god of the good tree was like wow this is this is amazing there's a the, there's a a real kind of like synchronicity here and we we get an idea of of just you know what the tree of life was that the garden of eden was was not an isolated thing that there was a Garden of Eden. Of course, in Sumeria, there was a Garden of Eden in the Americas, and, and I'm sure there were gardens, gardens of Edens in places in China, Europe, and so forth. That this were these were places where they had these incredible uh, rejuvenative trees that would do something with the water to transform it so that it would rejuvenate people who drank of that and uh, and and i think this is you know, you go into the sumerian uh, legends uh the the elixir of life i mean and, you know there's the story of adapa and and adapa uh king adapa i mean he was he was offered the opportunity to drink you know from this el- this uh drink of immortality so So the ancients knew about these kind of medicinal trees that could restore health. And I think this is one of the the wonderful things that is coming our way now as this information starts to come forward, because people automatically think that, well, you know, the next 20, 30, 40 years, it's going to be all high tech, smart cities, transhumanism. Uh, and, uh, spacecraft and all of those things and yeah and they kind of like that's a bit a little intimidating but the other side of that is going to be the return of the alchemical sciences where these beings such as Ningish Zida, Enki, Toth, uh Kukulkan, quetzalcoatl these beings return with the ancient alchemical sciences and people who are capable can start to practice these and you know depending on your your merit and your level of achievement you can then gain access to these incredible life extension plants uh, that do exist so yeah i think uh, we, you know we have incredible kind of uh, uh alchemical practices that can be achieved and mastered by people in the years ahead. So it's not going to just be high-tech. I think in the years ahead, the decades ahead, the, the alchemical sciences is going to be returned. And I think these ancient giants, like Zita Toth, Enki, many others, are going to come forward and return these and reintroduce, the, reintroduce these to humanity.
1: Well, I was re- reading the book, I was doing research on Ningishzida. And I found that, you know, he appeared in a lot of the mythology of the ancient Mesopotamian cultures, Sumerians, Akkadians, and we're talking about some of the alleged original civilizations here on, on earth. And as you say, An uh, and Anki, and, and um, you know, Sumer, Akkadian, Assyrian, Babylonians, all related to this individual and the good, the, the god of the good tree. Uh, talks about the life growth and the fertile earth. And if if this individual, if you can call him an individual or a demigod or whatever, if he has been in stasis for so long, why are the and people protecting him? And does this say something that we are, perhaps he is or his group, our creators and perhaps our longevity has been curtailed for some reason? And if so, why?
0: Yeah, a few really interesting questions there, uh, Mel. I mean, if you go to the Sumerian texts, it's unquestionably what is being proposed, that uh, humans were created by these, uh, the Anunnaki or the Anuna, as as is called, as they're described in these uh, ancient Sumerian texts. And Ningish Enki or Ia are, uh, and uh, Sag and quite a number of others are part of this pantheon of the Anunnaki that helped genetically engineer humanity. And the, the fact that you know, th- there's just not one giant, uh, that is in a stasis chamber, as far as I can tell, or I've been told, uh, there's there's a total of, of seven of them, uh, that are in stasis chambers. Around the world, who are being protected uh, by civilizations like the An people, because these uh, giants—they are Anunnaki scientists—that chose to remain behind for the time when humanity would be ready to uh, welcome back again the alchemical sciences, to welcome back again these uh, spiritual practices. Which can extend life, and also get us to kind of like understand how tr- how nature truly operates, and so I think this is where uh, we have this phenomenon of these giants um, being protected uh, because they represent the sacred sciences, the uh, the esoteric sciences, and you know they are they understand the importance of achieving balance. Between nature and uh, humanity, and and so alchemy is very important to uh, to them. It's not just a matter of building high tech societies. It's all about being in balance with with nature. And I think this is this is what they're bringing back with them. And this is where uh, they are protected. Now you know this is where there's a lot of confusion uh, because you know people when they think of giants they they think of the giants in the in, t- in terms of the Old Testament, uh, people like uh, uh, Tom Horn, uh, you know, they have been putting out a lot of information. L.A. Mazouli, another one, have been putting out a lot of information about these Nephilim, about these kind of like cannibalistic giants, the Goliath, that, exactly that were spoken about in the Old Testament. And so there's a kind of like unawareness that there are good giants as well as. Ban giants, just as there are good humans, saintly humans, as well as very, uh, very corrupt demonic humans, and and to label all giants as demonic as corrupt is a big mistake. And that that I think is, um, you know, I've I've done a couple of interviews with La Mazzuli, and I hope to interview uh, um, uh, Tom Horn in the future too, to kind of like get them to start to reconsider that position that they have, which is very much a a biblical worldview dominated by the Old Testament. But the Old Testament itself is itself a derivative of the Sumerian records. And the the Sumerian records are very clear that the early um, creations of the Anunnaki, some of them were giants, and, and so these were positive beings, these were benevolent beings, these were not negative, and and probably more important is that uh, these giant bodies were created as avatars for the Anunnaki themselves, that you know, the Anunnaki. Again, this is a misconception. Misconception of a lot of people. They assume that well, the Anunnaki arrived on their spacecraft and the Buru got here, um, and you know there there were some spacecraft on the Buru smaller landing craft, and the Anunnaki landed here, and then they lived amongst us for centuries and and so forth. Well, no, that's actually not correct. What what in fact happened is that yes, that did happen. The Anunnaki did arrive that way. Some of them did work the mines, but the, the Earth was, in terms of its uh, atmosphere, uh, gravity, uh, the biology—we're uh, talking about germs and so forth. Uh, this was a very inhospitable environment for the Anunnaki. So one of the goals of the Anunnaki was to create a hybrid body, a hybrid where you would, where they would kind of upgrade the hominids on the Earth who naturally were immune and could deal with the Earth, Earth's atmosphere and the ecosystem. but they would they upgraded it with genetics. And of course they created early humans, but it wasn't they didn't stop there. They also created giants. And it wasn't just one size giant. they created different types of giants because for the Anunnaki, uh, these giants would be Avatar bodies. For them, so that when you're looking at a high level Anunnaki, someone like, say, Ningish Zida, or someone like Enki, or Enlil, or Ninurta, or Ninhusag, all of these high level Anunnaki individuals, what they would do is that they would transfer their consciousness into one of these avatar bodies. So that's that's why I think that these avatar bodies or these giant stasis chambers exist. That, in for example, this underground ant civilization uh, that are guarding that sleeping giant, who we believe is is um, Ningish Zidda, that the soul of Ningish Zidda is kind of like out there doing whatever, or is incarnated. You know, we're not quite sure where the soul is. But at a certain time, that soul will choose to go back into that avatar body and use it, just just like in the movie Avatar. That I think is really what was going on with the uh, avatar bodies and and the giants. Some of these benevolent giants. So to kind of like, you know, get to the point here, the giants, the the positive giants, the Anunnaki that are in these stasis chambers i mean th- these are avatar bodies for the some of the principal anunnaki scientists and leaders to come in and we need to separate that from giants who are kind of living on earth as kind of like you know like goliath that they are fully engaged and they're here and some of them are were, were cannibals and, and they were they did go to war and uh, against the ancient Israelites and others. So yeah, that that sort of thing did exist. But it's much more nuanced than just, you know, giants, uh, 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 Nephilim, they're corrupt, evil, and they deserve to be obliterated. And now they're trying to come back. And we need to kind of like treat them with great suspicion.
1: Let me unpack a few things you said, because coincidentally, uh, last week I conducted an interview with Fritz Zimmerman. He works very closely with uh, Ellie Marzuli, who I've interviewed a few times, and we discussed exactly this topic of giants. And I'm not sure if you knew, but Tom Horn passed away a, a few days ago.
0: I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, well, that's, that's, well, yep, oh, that, He's that a, a loss. He
1: did. In you know, I, I know that... His focus was on other things, but he was a good contributor to a lot of this ancient uh, information. And again, going back to these giants, I've seen the videos of alleged Anunnaki giants in stasis with a beard. And I don't know what to make of those videos, but beyond the giants and the videos, it's the ornaments that surround the giants. And it makes you really wonder, who are they? And when are they waking up and for what reason? And you just mentioned that they're waiting for the right moment to to do what they have to do. Why are the and people considered a gift for humanity?
0: I just want to be clear about the, the question. Uh, you, you're asking me why are the ant people considered a gift for humanity? In the chapter or...
1: of the and people, you, you also say a gift to humanity.
0: Ah oh, yes, yes. Well, that gift was uh, these seeds from this tree of life, and some plants uh, that are bioluminescent uh, that could actually help uh, humanity if uh, they were introduced into the in, into the public arena. But the, the main gift was that they were given. The, the ant people passed on some seeds from the tree of life to JP's team that took this to the surface. uh, And that would presumably be so that you could actually grow another tree, or more than one tree, and or plants that have this incredible medicinal rejuvenative uh, property. And and I think that's very, very important that uh, the the pharmaceutical industry, as we know, uh, dominates Western and global society in terms of any any kind of health applications. Uh but true health comes from curing disease as opposed to treating disease. And you know, I'm sure you and your listeners are very familiar oh, with that distinction. You're speaking to the you're you're preaching to the choir. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, th- with, I think with this with this uh gift for humanity, this uh these plants and the seeds from the tree of life, uh you have these uh this this gift is the power to kind of like heal people and rejuvenate the body that our body has, has the capacity to live to a thousand years i mean yeah and we know that because if you go to the old testament uh you you see you, you look at uh the lifespans of some of these uh patriarchs these uh, uh anti deluvian uh patriarchs su- such as uh you have enoch you, you have Methuselah, uh, you you have Lamarck, you have Noah. All these guys lived to 900 years or more. And and then the, the age after the flood uh, started to diminish rapidly. And so by the time you get to Moses, I think Moses lived to 120, and then David lived to, to 70. So what happened? I, I think there was uh, a degradation of the genetics of of humanity that, uh, you know, I mean, we, we have chemtrails and uh, the poisoning of the water and the food supply. I mean, we, that's been well documented now, but we can, I think, safely assume that something similar was happening uh, thousands of years ago to shorten the lifespan of humans so that uh, we wouldn't live... To that age of 900 somehow the genetics were, were altered and changed uh, and how that was done we can kind of like talk about that but i think this gift for humanity is designed to start to reverse that that there are plants in existence and these trees with these incredible qualities that can reverse aging heal and cure us of just about any ailment you can imagine and and of course you know, this has been known for a long time uh, and the pharmaceutical industry came in and, you know, as you've, you know, I know you you do, you do a show on this, so, you, you know, you know the history of it. So, yeah, so I think this is one of the big contributions that the awakening of these giants like Ningish Zita is going to bring back that, yes, we, we can, and by the Correct understanding of the alchemical sciences, we can naturally increase our lifespans to like a thousand years and be in perfect health and and be kind of like have a physical body that looks, you know, in the mid-30s. And that's the
1: name, you know, that comes to mind, Methuselah. He's the longest one that I can remember. Uh, 959 years, he was the son of Enoch, the father of Lamech, and the grandfather of Noah, and you have plenty of others, Seth, Enos, you know Canaan, and a bunch of others. And then, as you said, the great flood came along, and the, the the lifespan went down hundreds of years, still longer than what we live today, and what we have in our food, our air, I don't need to tell you about chemtrails and the rest of it. But it makes you wonder, why is it, and is it also, if you look at, and I've discussed this before, the trees, these giant trees that were probably cut, and you can see them, if you come around at the desert where I live, you see them, and you'll never be able to unsee these areas that look like if you had to dig inside, you'll see roots going for miles and miles. Do you think that at one point, our atmosphere was fuller with oxygen, and we had a different environment here where giants lived. And now because of gravity and the lack of oxygen, this is why we don't see them anymore. Oh, you're muted.
0: Oh, I think there was a world, an ancient world once where the the giants did flourish and there were these giant trees. And I I think you put me onto the Devil's Tower in Wyoming, that that's an ancient tree and when i when i kind of did a little bit of research into that i was i was amazed i thought wow this this really was an ancient tree and that i mean the world at that time when that tree was was flourishing was very very different there was probably a firmament and i, I think that uh you know the, the giants flourished uh, but i think also uh people had a greater understanding of uh, the role of nature and being in harmony with nature. And I I think what at some point must have happened was that someone came in. And, and of course, when we look at the stories of the Anunnaki, we see that there were these two principal factions, one associated with uh, Enki or Prince Ia, which was... One of kind of like, um, you know, understanding the sacred sciences and and being in harmony with alchemy, uh, you know, understanding the way in which the the kundalini operated, and the other brother, uh, Enlil, who was the, the sky god. I mean, he was all into high tech, he was all into the space program, he was all into war, and um, and for him, uh, he didn't want to have anything to do with this kind of uh, um, this. Kind of like uh al- alchemical science and having a, a civilization flourish that was steeped in the alchemical sciences. I mean, he wanted a high-tech civilization where uh, people would be puppets that he could control and recruit for his um space program, uh for his whatever imperial conquests he had in mind. So that's so that's what he wanted. And there was a there was a struggle between th- these two brothers um for uh, thousands of years, and and that was that was the conflict. And I suspect at some point, you know, whether that was at the great flood, or whether you know the devil's tower that that happened much earlier at, at the end of another age it's quite possible that happened. That at some point, uh, the the sky god won, and and like and asserted his vision of this high tech space culture and obliterated the, the the natural world and the, the kind of like that alchemical understanding of how humanity could interact with nature to prolong life and be in perfect health, to obliterate that so that you could have the kind of like space and sciences, you know, space sciences being the dominant of, with high tech. When I look at all these stories, you know, before I used to think,
1: oh, this is a lot of allegory to make information more, you know, digestible for people. But the more I look into this, the more I wonder what Michael Tellinger told me is that what we think to be urban legends or mythology could in fact be sworn statements by priests and kings. And it brings me back to the Tower of Babel. And, you know, if, if anybody's a, a Bible scholar, you can go to Genesis 11, 1 to 9, and you can see how it was destroyed allegedly by God and then God confounded the languages of the people who were building the tower because they wanted to reach heaven, causing them to stop the construction and scatter them across the earth. And that's one notion that I've always wondered. Why do we speak so so many different languages? Why so many, so much separation? When in fact, if we have been here for, I don't know, millions of years, you would think that we would speak one language,
0: one commonality. Well, I think this probably goes to now uh, this degrading, <clears throat> pardon me, of the uh, human genome, or the, the somehow our DNA was was altered so that uh, that capacity to telepathically communicate with with each other that that was undercut. And Paul Wallace, uh, he has done. I mean, he's written uh, several Eden. books. I mean, his Eden, Eden, Escape from Eden series. Uh, he and he discusses the Tower of Babel, and you know he makes the case. And and there's also Matthew Lacroix as well. The stage of time where they where they discuss the Tower of Babel and make the point that at that point in time, uh, humanity was appeared to be, or, or at the very least, there were a lot of humans that were fully telepathic, um, and that that was the the lingua franca that the that the elite could communicate through telepathic means and that this was something that uh, was of great concern to the gods. Uh, And and I think at that time, uh, Enlil uh, was in command. Uh, This is the kind of like post-flood world. So Enlil was in command. Enki had lost that war and he left. And his scientists kind of went into hibernation and, and hiding. So andal was in command, and uh, so he wouldn't brook any kind of uh, challenge. And so when this uh, Nimrod, who was apparently the person responsible for building the Tower of Babel, and I think he was one of these uh, one of these kings, uh, very impressive uh, kings, who was an alchemist himself and uh, very knowledgeable, that uh, he was someone that was regarded as a threat by the gods, by Enlil and the others. And so he, his project, the Tower of Babel, was, was destroyed and the humans were confounded or some, uh, somehow their genetics were altered. So that telepathic ability to communicate that I think many humans had or at the very least the elite had that that was cut and of course then you know we degenerated into uh, speaking these different uh, languages verbally as opposed to communicating telepathically and of course once you do that then the the prospect for miscommunication and uh, offending others and uh, wars you know that just increases exponentially and when you think
1: about it, if, if the only way we have is to communicate verbally as we're doing today, it, and then when you think about a concept, you can think a thousand words in a matter of one second. And I think that verbal communication was done to curtail those abilities, because I always say the biggest conspiracy of all is a secret to our own potential. But the interactions between the surface humans and the underground civilizations, that could be seen as a bridge between two worlds each one with its unique perspective and wisdom. How does JP see the relationship between surface humans and these underground beings evolving in the future, especially in light of the missions and interactions you've described, Michael?
0: Well, you know, one of the things that stood out about these underground civilizations that JP has has seen is that, you know, they had achieved a harmony between nature and science. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, they had these incredible plants, bioluminescent plants, uh, plants that were rejuvenative, the tree of life, uh, and, and that were also a food supply. They also had high tech. They had spacecraft and so forth, and they had this ancient wisdom. And, and he said that one of the things that really impressed him about the ant civilization and other underground civilizations he's visited, he's also seen a, kind of like an underground human-looking Nordic. Uh, civilization as well. Um, also in Florida, he said you you felt this sense of peace and joy there. That there there was this there was this kind of uh, goodwill vibration you could feel, and it just felt like a sanctuary. It just felt very very nice. And so, what I think is likely to happen is that uh, the different underground civilizations that have achieved this incredible um, lifestyle where they balance science and nature where they've achieved a high state of consciousness where in their presence you you just feel good um, that they are going to reintroduce themselves to humanity but in a way uh, that doesn't disrupt their balance because you know the one thing about our surface civilization is that we're incredibly out of balance. I mean, you just have to look at what we do to the forests and how we overpopulate and how we kind of like uh, butcher one another and just, uh, you know, people live in these urban metropolises and uh, don't go out into nature. Uh, you know, all of these things that show our civilization is out of balance. Uh, so if these if these underground civilizations were to suddenly reveal themselves and say, "Hey, hello, everyone, surface humans," you know, we like to welcome you. You're, you're our cousins. Welcome to our boat. Well, you know, they would be flooded, and their civilization would would be lost or would be overwhelmed uh, by you know millions of surface humans wanting to go down there and like uh, see this. So so they're going to open up in an incremental way and i think they they're doing that to protect themselves but also to help surface humanity you know get our act together because we are totally out of balance you know i mean you know you look at i mean what what we're heading towards in terms of you know transhumanism uh in terms of these uh, smart cities in in terms of like um you know not not understanding exactly what you know what it, Means to be human or the different uh, acknowledging the different sexes, you know, all of these things that indicate that we are out of balance, that we have to find that balance again. We need to start respecting one another. We need to be kind of more empathic with one another and get away from this kind of very violent majoritarian thinking. You know, that's that's part of the characteristic of Western democracies, which is very. Uh, corrupting people not realizing it is that well you know as long as you as long as you're part of that 50.1 percent that is the majority you know you can legislate whatever you like and you know bad luck for the other ones for the other for the other side and, and 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 you know you've got to get away from that thinking that that we are all kind of tied together and that you know laws have to be passed that apply to everyone um that everyone can embrace and be respectful of so i I, th- I think you know we have a long way to go and so the inner earth civilizations are going to slowly open themselves up in a way where they can maintain their balance but also help us find a balance so that we don't so that we don't kind of like rush headlong into this high tech society where we cut off from nature from the from the planet itself and become these kind of like uh, cyborgs like in the the Borg in the you know in the Star Trek series i'm just remembering
1: years ago a third party contacted me saying there was a shaman in mexico that wanted to get in touch with me because he has been in touch with one of these beings from an underground civilization and he came beyond patagonia beyond argentina antarctica And the way it's not via spacecraft, they came from underground, apparently under our feet. There are caverns with, let's call them international highways. And this is how they come up and down. And they don't want to obviously come up, but they just want to warn us saying, hey, listen, you guys are misbehaving. We don't want to mess with you, but they are, they have the technology. And when asked, you know, why are you so pale? It's because they don't need melanin they use the energy in other ways have you heard that too
0: well i know that there's an extensive portal system uh in the inner earth and that's mm-hmm. how a lot of the inner earth beings uh travel around the planet uh and so yeah and that and that is also part of uh just raising one's consciousness that as you as you do that as you uh master consciousness as you understand uh, the way in which the, the Kundalini energy operates and flows through the chakra system, because the chakras in a way are like portals for higher consciousness. Right. So so once you, you've you got your chakras fully activated, uh, then you can kind of calibrate your chakras to be able to uh, master these portals, to be able to travel through them. So, so that's, I think, part of this kind of like learning curve that we have to go through once we start to you can reconnect with the inner earth beings. Uh, so, yeah, so the, the inner earth beings, uh, as, as far as their, um, uh, their skin colors is concerned. Yeah. I've, I've heard that there, a lot of them are predominantly kind of light skin. And, and that's because, uh, you know, obviously on the surface of the planet, especially around the equatorial regions, the um, you're, you're, um, the, the sun, um, like the the pigmentation gets influenced by the sun and people get very dark but if you're living in the inner earth uh, i mean there is a kind of inner sun but it's not nearly as powerful as uh the soul the the plant of the sun um that's in the center of our solar system so people in the inner earth you know they don't have that kind of very dark pigmentation. So people often ask, "Well, you know, how come a lot of the inner earth beings and the extraterrestrials are light skinned and blue eyed and blonde and all of that?" Well, you know, it's all about uh, pigmentation because if you're exposed, if you're not exposed to a sun constantly, then over a period of um, decades or centuries, your your, your skin color is going to change, and that's and, and that's just uh, you know that's just biology. You mentioned kundalini, and I I don't mean to offend anybody
1: about what I'm about to say. Well, we see the dogmatic aspect of religion and the dogmatic aspect of science. They both say, no, you know, kundalini, this is just, you know, BS. It's uh, people who meditate and and so on. But I've talked to people who say you, you need to really learn how to practice breathing. Because by breathing, you can actually move the spinal fluid all the way to your brain. And that's how you achieve Kundalini. But you ask somebody who's a, a, a religious overseller or a scientific overseller, and they both will tell, will tell you that's just anecdotal BS. Yeah, well, that's um,
0: that's a good example of the way in which our science works. Uh, disparages or just doesn't understand the alchemical uh, sciences that yeah the uh, alchemical the great alchemists of the past I mean they they did work with the kundalini energies they understood how to raise the kundalini as you're saying using different different practices and people would be taught how to breathe properly to to raise those kundalini energies to achieve these higher states of consciousness and you know and as you achieve these higher states of consciousness that the the mysteries of the planet open up and, you know, there's there's so many kind of mysteries on this planet uh, that a fully awakened being with uh, all the chakras opened up, I mean, they accumulate vast amounts of knowledge. So I think this is part of the kind of the, the tradition of the the great masters, you know, whether we're talking about Babaji or whether we're talking about people like, uh, you know, the Count of St. Germain or El Moya, the uh, you know, different Great masters. Uh, that these are beings that have achieved these high states of consciousness because uh, that they understood how to activate the kundalini energy, and that's something that's largely being lost. and And I think the reason is is very simple. Uh, that's been lost because the controllers don't want fully empowered humans. They don't want people with fully activated kundalini's who are able to. Um, navigate through the the portal systems of the earth and kind of gain tremendous amount of knowledge where where they live, extended lifespans in perfect health. I mean, that's the last thing the deep state wants because you can't control people like that. What the deep state wants uh, is kind of like people who are dumbed down, smart enough to be able to work the technologies that they're introduced to, but not smart enough to work out the alchemical sciences. So that's where the big challenge is for us now at this point in time is that we've got to awaken people that, hey, you know, you, you've know, got to break the programming. Don't be just a, a tool uh, that is, is being manipulated into being a slave for a system that doesn't care for you, that abuses you, that doesn't allow you to achieve your fullest potential understand that you have incredible potential you could live to a thousand years you can live in perfect health with um you know just looking like you're in your mid-30s and the this is what you need to do and start mastering these are chemical sciences and the kundalini is a part of that
1: we have to take our one and only break when we come back I believe this was the second mission to an underground world. Am I right? This is what you discuss also in the second book. Am I right?
0: Uh, Yes, he's conducted several missions to uh, underground civilizations, uh, several missions to the Ant-People civilization. Also, he's conducted missions to uh, spaceports, underground spaceports that are owned or manned by these Nordic-looking humans who are likely descendants or a colony of beings from other worlds like the like the Pleiades when we
1: come back we'll discuss more how can people buy the new installment Michael and all of your other books
0: our best place is to, is to just go to Amazon they're all there they're available under my name Michael Sala and uh, insiders sorry um, uh, the US Army inside of missions one and two those are the latest two books dealing with uh, JP's uh, missions. One more hour
1: to come with Dr. Michael Sala and JP's fascinating story. This is Mel Sturek, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere.
2: Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion or have feedback, Just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas.